Amen. Good morning, church. Good morning, family. Are you well? Are you blessed? God is good? And all the time? Amen. Good to be back. Good to see all your friendly, smiling faces. Uh, didn't the ladies do well uh, with that item? Yes. Wow. Come give them another hand, will you? And uh, like you heard, uh, for a moment the men's fellowship uh, felt like a woman's event <laughs> because we were all crying and sobbing like babies. So I'm just going to cover up these red eyes this morning. And uh, it's also good to be back from the Maldives. Uh, for those of you who don't know, now you know, uh, the wife and I had a good time uh, last week. We spent a week in the Maldives, and the whole time we're there, I'm thinking, my goodness, what a God idea it would be to plant a church in Maldives and leave you all here. <laughs> Maybe I'll take Greenville and Serisha, but who knows? Who knows? <laughs> but uh, God's just good. It's incredibly hot in the Maldives. You do not know hot until you've been to the Maldives. It's hot all year round. Uh, the workers who've been there six, seven months, years, say that it never gets cold. Minimum temperatures is 27. Wow. And so I'm just happy my white eyes got tanned. <laughs> because my, my children, when they see me in my boxer shorts, they say, Daddy, why are you so white? <laughs> so uh, just glad for the suntan. Uh, just glad to be back home, Mr. you all, Mr. Routine. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for your prayers as well. Uh, when you watch a few Netflix documentaries of planes crashing and tsunamis and, and, uh, and the volcanic eruptions, uh, you know, you are really grateful to just come home alive. Amen. <laughs> well, we caught like uh, three, four flights going with, oh, how many flights we took? We took a flight from here to Dubai, from Dubai to Mali, from Mali to the island, and took a bus ride to some uh, shore where we caught a boat for another 30 minutes, and then got to our destination just to walk another 1.5 kilometers to the room. <laughs> All in the heat. <laughs> we did like between 10,000, 12,000 footsteps a day. And uh, oh, we ate. We ate and ate and ate, but I think all that walking just shed off all the, the excess weight. Uh, turn with me, would you, to the book of Ecclesiastes. We are still um, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I just love our change in focus uh, on Sunday mornings. Uh, the shift from topical thematic preaching to uh, book studies. Uh, because it really, really gives us a chance to understand scripture book by book. Uh, you know, I, I often say to, I say to Pastor Israel, because we, we chat every week, and now again, I, I, I just say to Zoe, you know, we do ourselves such a disservice when we pick and choose what scriptures to read and memorize. Uh, you just miss something when you don't sit down from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. 
And this is what I'm enjoying about uh, our new approach is that as we're sharing the word of God, as a church, you know what to read. You, last month we were in Mark, previous month, uh, where were we in? James? Before that, we were in Daniel. So, so, so now we're in Ecclesiastes, so I'm really expecting that you're reading the book of Ecclesiastes. Amen. Oh, Lord. Can I get a louder amen? amen? If you haven't started, please start. We're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes for the next week or so. Okay, we're in chapter 3. And uh, Zoe always tells me when she hears this uh, passage of scripture, it reminds her of Mr. Davies in Innerdale. <laughs> Apparently, it was his favorite passage of scripture that we quote every day. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 reading from verse 1 in the New King James translation. Bible reads as follows, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. That term kill, let me just clarify that in the Hebrew does not mean murder <laughs> okay it just means that sometimes in life if you in law enforcement for example there may come a time where you even may need to defend your home your family where this occurs okay this is not first like first uh, degree murder a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Did you hear that, sir, Zoe? You can't embrace me when we're driving, okay? <laughs> a time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I've seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in, in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which has already been and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. Moreover, I saw under the sun, say under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time 
there for every purpose and for every work. I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God test them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. But what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them, as one dies, so as one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men which goes upwards, and the spirit of the animal which goes downwards to the earth. So I perceived that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Amen. God bless to us the reading of his word. Hallelujah. Can we, can we pray? Father, thank you for such a beautiful time in your presence. I thank you for what you're doing in our hearts and for the way you speak to us. And I pray, Lord, that you will just confront us this morning, challenge us, change us. Change us, Lord, because we want to be more like you. You said, Lord, those whom you foreknew, you predestined to be conformed to the image of your Son. And that is our heart's desire, Lord, that through the teaching and preaching and understanding and application of your word, we learn wisdom and learn the fear of the Lord and learn to become more and more like you in all we say and do. Help us, Lord, to receive the incorruptible seed of your word on good soil this morning. Anoint your speaker that he would speak as an oracle of God this morning. And like we sang earlier, Lord, this is my heart's cry that your anointing would fall on me in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. and amen. Pastor Clinton did such an amazing job yeah. last week. Yeah. He laid a good foundation for our series. This morning I'm going to title our message, Life Under the Sun. Life Under the Sun. So I'm quickly going to review some of the things which he said, and then I'm kind of going to snowball into chapter 3, and the four things I really want to leave with you this morning. So the first thing you've got to understand about the book of Ecclesiastes is that the term Ecclesiastes is a transliteration of the Hebrew name, which is Koheleth. Koheleth is the actual Hebrew term. And Ecclesiastes is the Latin translation of Koheleth. As you will read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you will see the term Koheleth be translated into either the term preacher or the English term teacher. And so wherever you see the terms preacher and teacher being used in the book of Ecclesiastes, the actual term is Koheleth. Not Krohela, but Koheleth. Okay? 
It's spelled Q-O-H-E-L-E-T-H, -E -E but it's pronounced Kohel, with the emphasis on hell, le, Kohel. It's important to know this because, like I've mentioned previously, is that our English definitions don't suffice. And that when you really want to get into, uh, into proper, thorough Bible study and, and seeking out the meaning of Scripture, you've got to strip away the English translation and get down to the regional language of Scripture, which is Hebrew, pieces of Aramaic, and the New Testament, which was written in Greek. So it's good to have a concordance which translates these terms which translates these terms uh, into the original, into original language, so you get to see the original language and words and terms used. And the reason why we need to understand uh, the use of this word, this Hebrew word kohalat, is because the words preacher and teacher don't do justice. The moment you hear the term preacher, you, you immediately think of someone with a mic in their hand which is a problem. And if you just hear the word teacher, you think of someone in a classroom or a Sunday school teacher. But if you understand that the Hebrew term Kohelet was used, you know that you have to go back and understand in the Middle Eastern context, what was a Kohelet? Now, a Kohelet is not a name. It's not the use of a name like like Solomon or Joe or Clinton, no. Kohelet was a designation, an office of occupation. The term literally means one who assembles, an assembler. And when you read Ecclesiastes 1 verse 1, the author introduces himself as the words of the Kohelet, son of David, king over Jerusalem. So he introduces himself as a Kohelet, and if you understand Middle Eastern culture, Kohelet was actually a philosophical sage, a wisdom sage that was associated with proverbs and, and, and wisdom and teaching wisdom to students. A Kohelet was someone who was occupied in the temple in, in Middle Eastern times of a king and their job was to understand life from a philosophical view and to seek out wisdom. And, and a Kohelet was a scribe, a master of literature and parables. And so it's the kind of picture of sitting with an old wise man around a campfire and he's sharing wisdom of the ages. And so when Solomon introduces himself, well, we speculate that it's Solomon. And when you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you have no doubt in your mind that the author of Ecclesiastes is Solomon. But liberal theologians debate it. But the fact that he refers to himself as, the, as a king over Israel. There were only two kings over, or three kings over a united Israel. It was Saul, David, and Solomon. So a Kohelet was someone who was articulate, someone who 
functioned as a father, as a wise sage to students in his day. Someone who was a literary authority, a prolific writer. And when we look at the author of Ecclesiastes, many assume that the term Kohelet strictly refers to Solomon because the root word in 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, which is assemble, refers to the time when Solomon was, was assembled all of Israel to dedicate the temple of the Lord for the first time. And so many assume that this is the reason why he refers to himself as the Kohelet. The book of Ecclesiastes falls into the category of genre which we call literary uh, wisdom literature, sorry. The book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Job fall into this category called wisdom literature. When you read the book of Proverbs, Job and Ecclesiastes, you will note that there's a similar theme of wisdom that runs through these books. And yet there's a distinction of wisdom that we are faced and confronted with. Proverbs, you will note, deals more with practical wisdom. You know, wisdom that you need on a day-to-day -day basis. Ecclesiastes and Job, however, is more of a philosophical book in an attempt to discover what is the meaning of life? Why do we suffer? How is God dealing with us? So when we approach Proverbs, we learn wisdom through observation. When we approach Ecclesiastes, we learn wisdom through philosophy and critical thinking. When we approach the book of Job, we learn wisdom through suffering. Proverbs is the kind of book that says that if you want to live a blessed life, you have to do good. You have to apply knowledge and understanding. Ecclesiastes is the kind of book that lets us know that even if we live a good life, no matter what, our fate is the same. And when we approach the book of Job, Job tells us, that even if you live a good life and do the right thing, you can still go through painful experiences. Yeah. The book of Ecclesiastes is written in an autobiographical format. It's written in a way that is, is self-reflecting. The author is self-reflecting as he's writing through his lectures. You will find him in, first, uh, in the first chapter, second chapter, right through to the 12th chapter, making statements like, I said to myself, or I the preacher who have been king over Israel. He says in chapter 1, I've set my mind to know wisdom, madness and folly, and I realized it is a striving after the wind. So he's speaking to himself. There are many categories of sub-genres that you will find in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's written in literature prose format. You will also find the use of parallelism and proverbs. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 2 is an example where Solomon writes and says, A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart is on his left. So this is what we call parallelism or a proverb or a contrast. You will also find him making use of a parable in chapter 9 verse 13 
where he says, This wisdom I have also seen under the sun, and it seems great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against that city and besieged it, and built great snares around that city. Now there was found in the city a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembers the same poor wise man. Then I said to myself, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard, rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And then you'll find him in chapter 3, also make use of Hebrew poetry. The chapter we just read, to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. What is the main message of Ecclesiastes? What's the purpose of this book? In my opinion, the purpose of this book is to dismantle all our false illusions about life and life's pleasures. And so the author, the Kohalath, goes to great extent to show us that you will not find true fulfillment in accumulating wealth. Because he's been there. He's accumulated all the wealth of the world. This is Solomon. His splendor we will never truly know. He's had 700, uh, was it concubines? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, or was wives and 300 concubines. <laughs> he knew pleasure. His cup was overflowing with pleasure. He was filthy, stinking rich. And he was wise. But like one theologian says, he was the wise fool. Paradox of scripture. And so the author himself is going to great lengths to show us that he's been there before. And you can pursue that, but at the end of it, you're going to be found empty. <coughs> Another reason why the author and Kohalath gives to us the book of Ecclesiastes is because like every other wisdom book, uh, and, and, and scripture that falls into the category of wisdom literature or has a nuance of wisdom, the, the fundamental lesson of wisdom is this, that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. <coughs> the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so he rambles and rants from chapter 1 through to chapter 12 in a pursuit of meaning and meaning of life, making sense of the suffering and pleasures of this life. And he reaches a crescendo to everything he's saying in chapter 12, verses 13 to 14, in this culminating truth where he says, this is the conclusion. When all has been heard and said and done, fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act and person into judgment. Everything which is hidden. Whether it is good or evil. That's the point he's making. 
The author is also providing, one, providing us with the perspective of life from the place of being a wise man who has experienced and gone through many of life's pursuits. And in a sense, he's telling us, this is what I've experienced. Don't be a fool and go through the same experience. Because it's foolish to learn from your own experiences when you can learn from the experience of another. And lastly, he tells us and reminds us of that sobering truth, the truth that we forget so often, but reminded so sharply of whenever we have to lay down a loved one to rest. He's reminding us that life is short and that life is unpredictable and that you are a breath away from eternity. And the only way to find true meaning in the time we allocate it to with is to have faith and have obedience to God. And so the book is structured in an interesting way. And the purpose why the book is structured in this way is to create the overall impression of the author's intention. And so from chapter 1, verses 1 to 11 is what you have, uh, uh, that is called a prologue. And so he lays down his theme from the very beginning of the chapter. And then, and then from, verse, from chapter 1, from verse 12, he gives this autobiographical introduction of himself and his life experiences. And then you see from chapter 1, verses 13 to chapter 2 and 26, where he's on this pursuit and quest for the meaning of life. And then from chapter 3 to chapter 6, you will find that he's still pursuing this cause. Then from chapter 6, verse 10 to 12, chapter 12, verse 7, the coalesce starts to give us some wisdom advice. And then lastly, the book ends with an epilogue, which is the conclusion and purpose for wise writing, where he says, uh, the conclusion of the matter is that we should all fear God and that we'll be brought into judgment, full stop. It's like he poses all these questions to, to stop your critical thinking. And, 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 and then he brings you to this place where he says, Okay, this is the end of the road now. We're not going to debate this any further. Fear God. <laughs> Obey Him. You'll be brought into judgment. We'll all die. If you read through the book of Ecclesiastes uh, in the wrong approach, and you don't approach the genre in, with the right tools, you can walk away depressed. Yeah. Don't read the book of Ecclesiastes when you're having a rough day. <laughs> you know, uh, one, one, uh, one theologian I listened to explained the book of Ecclesiastes as a drunk man sitting at a bar <laughs> and lamenting about how life is miserable and on this pursuit uh, on what is the purpose for everything. So don't go picking up uh, the book of Ecclesiastes if your anxiety is hitting the ceiling, okay? <laughs> And so, to simply divide the book of Ecclesiastes, it's divided into three main parts in a nutshell. There's a prologue, and there's a monologue, and there's an epilogue. 
Okay. The prologue and epilogue are written in third person uh, reference, while the, the monologue is written in the first person um, format. Okay. So what is, and I, and I think this is important because the prologue lays out the framework for the, for the entire book. It sets the, the framework and so there are certain key statements that the Kohelet makes that we need to pay attention to to understand uh, the meaning and the purpose of the book and everything is writing. Okay, if we miss uh, these philosophical uh, you know statements, we're going to miss the meaning of the book. Okay, so in chapter one and verse two, the Bible says. That the preacher declares to us vanity of vanities says the preacher vanity of vanities all is vanity another translation probably the NIV translation puts it this way and uses the term meaningless instead of vanity it says meaningless meaningless says the teacher utterly meaningless everything is meaningless and then you find it again in in, in chapter 12 at the end of the book chapter 12 verse 8 where the Kohelet says again, vanity of vanity, meaningless, meaningless, everything is utterly meaningless, says the teacher. So he frames the entire book, chapter 1 and chapter 12, with a statement, everything is vanity. And he frames it in a Hebrew superlative. You know, vanity of vanities, king of kings, holy of holies, song of songs. It's a Hebrew superlative, which means uh, if you're the king of kings, there's no other king like you. You're the greatest king of all times. Holy of holies means that it's the holiest of all places that could ever exist. Song of songs that Solomon wrote is the greatest song of all. And so when he says vanity of vanity or, or meaningless, meaningless, he's saying there's nothing more vain and meaningless than this. It's the most utterly meaningless thing. And he frames Ecclesiastes in the statement. What does this statement refer to? This statement refers to the temporary fleeting nature of our human existence. The brevity of life. That's what he's speaking to. Is that from a philosophical perspective, no matter what you do, how successful you become, and, and how how infamous or famous or popular you become or what respect you gain we are no different to the animals we're going to die anyway that's what he's saying <laughs> and then he makes another statement which is so important which is the title of our message this morning and it's found again in the prologue in verse 3 where he says what advantage does a man have in all his work in which he does, under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, is referenced over 29 times in 12 chapters. It's a short book. 29 times. He makes reference to under the sun, life under the sun. It's important to understand this statement because it tells you how he's viewing and interpreting and looking at life. He's looking at life under the sun. From a humanistic, 
secularist point of view, someone who knows something about God and he's just looking at life from a mere place of existence. Yeah. He's not looking at life as a theologian or a Christian or a believer. He's looking at life from a philosophical point of view, life under the sun. He's not considering anything above the sun. The God who is above the sun. No, he's considering and looking at life under the sun. This phrase is also synonymous with the term fallen world or the phrase fallen world. Okay? So wherever you, you see the phrase under the sun, you can put on your New Testament cap and glasses and consider that he's writing about what life is like in a fallen world since Adam. So he's looking at life, the meaning of life, and the cycles and patterns of life, and the complexities of life, and the unpredictable nature of life, from a place of being in a fallen world. Life under the sun. And so we find this tension between the author's convictions, his reflections, and and what he sees that's happening in the world, all the inconsistencies and complexities of life, and he's seeing how it's been subjected to futility and death. Like any other book, we've got to also ask the question, how is Christ revealed in the book of Ecclesiastes? Because every, every passage of Scripture, every book must point us to Jesus. How does the book of Ecclesiastes point us to Jesus? Jesus himself said that uh, to, to the Pharisees of his day, he said, search the scriptures, they testify of me. Okay. And Revelation says the spirit of prophecy uh, is the testimony of Jesus. So the scriptures testify about Jesus. So what is Ecclesiastes telling us about Jesus? <laughs> Firstly, Ecclesiastes teaches us that everything is meaningless in a fallen world. And Ecclesiastes is trying to get us to embrace and understand wisdom. And the New Testament tells us that Christ is not only a wise sage, but he is the very wisdom of God. And he came into a fallen world. And he gives meaning to a hopeless world. In chapter 2, the preacher found no pleasure in all and no fulfillment in all the pleasures and possessions that this world has to offer. And the wise sage asks the question, what profit does a man gain from all his labor under the sun? And Jesus posed a similar question and says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? and yet lose his soul. This is where we find Jesus in Ecclesiastes, in that Jesus now gives us the meaning of life. And every step towards Jesus, or every step away from Jesus, rather, is a step towards meaninglessness. Because Jesus transforms us and gives us meaning even through our accomplishments, and he rescues us in a redemptive way to give us purpose and fulfillment. 
And so in chapter 1, in, in our prologue of Ecclesiastes, we introduce to uh, the, the author's monotonous, meaningless view of life under the sun. And that all of life's pleasures and possessions are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. You can hear that the author is unfulfilled and unsatisfied with everything that this life has to offer. Then in chapter 2, it's almost as if Solomon now appears and Solomon conducts this, this research and this experiment and he tells us that, look, I've had more slaves than anyone could ever imagine. I've had herds and cattle and land and I've surrounded myself with the most skilled of artisans and artists and singers and I've had the most beautiful of, of women you could imagine but still this does not satisfy and in his personal quest for pleasure and power and possessions he still came up short and then in chapter 3 the teacher tells us uh, something very grave about life and he tells us that we are trapped in this construct of time. And he brings us into this drumbeat and march of time and he gives us a sober dose of truth. And he tells us in a nutshell, in the four things I want to tell you this morning, that life is temporary, that death is inescapable, and eternity is real, and that judgment is looming. Those are the four things he communicates to us in chapter 3. These are the most sobering truths that you can hold closely and dear to your life. If you hold these three truths or these four truths to your heart and you live your life through them, you will, you will live as a wise sage in your time. And so he tells us firstly between uh, uh, chapter 3 uh, verses 1 and 8, he tells us that life is temporary. He tells us and reminds us that life is temporary because time is marching. Time is moving along and we are trapped in this construct called time and he says to everything there's a season a time for every purpose under heaven there's a time to be born and there's a time to die a time to plant a time to to unpluck a time to kill a time to heal a time to break down and build up a time to weep and laugh he's telling us that we are trapped in the cycle of time and that the most important thing you need to know first of all about time is that in time and in this construct of time, you will be born and you will die. Life is temporary. And so he introduces us, uh, the Kohelet, the wise sage or Solomon, he introduces us to one of the most treasured Hebrew poems in scripture. The time poem or as others call the poem of times it's, it's one of the best pieces of ecclesiastes and it's a carefully constructed parallelism between two aspects of time and he sets out 14 pairs of statements 28 contrasting ideas in a selection of general activities 
that are undertaken at any moment or any given time. These are a catalog of pros and cons, an endless cycle of events and march of time. His purpose for breaking this down for us is to present us with a few absolute truths, truths that won't change. Firstly, you will notice to this poem and parallelism to every good facet there is a bad facet a bad shadow a dark shadow that casts itself upon the good aspect and in a nutshell he's telling us that there are good times and there's bad times yeah. and that no one is exempt from the bad times yeah. he's amplifying this message and sobering us up to the reality of life and it still bothers me that I can still find people that will come up to me and say, how can I serve? How can I serve God? How can I allow bad things to happen to good people? This is life. Bad things happen to good people. And good things happen to bad people. It's something that Solomon was perplexed about. It's something that I'm still perplexed about. How is it that the most wealthiest of men in our, and women in our country are politicians, civil servants? And getting all the tenders. And children looking like they eat all the tender money. <laughs> Solomon is communicating to us that even as a believer and child of God and Christian, you can be on the receiving end of life's harshest blows. And sometimes you can even be a faithful follower of Christ and your wife can walk out on you. Or your husband can walk out on you. Or your child can flop out on you. Or sickness can pounce on you. Or your company can turn on you. No one is exempt from time and chance. And when, and, when, and when Solomon is talking about time and chance, the word chance in Hebrew means the unpredictability of life. And sometimes in life's movie, the, the good guy don't get the girl. Just don't get the girl. And sometimes it's that bow braiding guy with a leather jacket that sweeps off with the darling of Gauteng. <laughs> this is the nature of time and chance. And this is what is indirectly communicating to us, is that none of us get to escape the randomness and unpredictability of life. Secondly, you'll notice that uh, the Kohelet is using a repetition of the word time. He says, time to be born, time to plot, time to kill, time to pull, time to weep, time to cast away, time to gather, time, 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 time. He's creating the sense of monotony and rhythm and motion. And he's telling us there's a cycle and rhythm of, of life. You, you were born to die and everybody's going to die. And one generation comes up and another generation comes, comes up after them. And life and time is moving in the cycle and pace that you cannot slow down. 
He says, basically, when you're born, you're basically born bald and toothless and you're eating soft food and you're wearing diapers. And when you reach the end of your life, you end up getting bald, toothless, eating soft food and wearing diapers. <laughs> That's the cycle of life. Yeah. And lastly, you'll notice between verses 3 and 13 of chapter 3, he says, what profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I've seen the God-given task in which the sons of men have been occupied with. But God has made everything beautiful in its time and he has put eternity in their hearts except that no one should find out the work that God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Effectively, he's telling us that time is marching on. We won't be able to stop the rhythm and pace of life. Life's unpredictable. As time and chance happens to us all, we're all trapped in this construct of this repetition cycle of life's events. Rejoice and do good in whatever season you find yourself in. That's what he's telling us. Find contentment in the season you're in. Make the most of what you have now. Because life happens. That's what he's telling us. That's what he's implicitly telling us. There's nothing better for you to do than, than to rejoice and be content in the time you have now because you are one breath away from eternity. And he says, God is the only master of time. He says, he is the one who, who, who is eternal. And he put eternity in our hearts. And whatever he does is forever. God is the only master of time. We don't master time. So he says, effectively, love in the present. And be content with what you have. And all we have, fundamentally, family, is we have the present. We have the now. We don't have tomorrow. We only have now. We can only learn and accept from what has happened in the past. And if we concentrate and fix all our attention on the future, anxiety will rob us of our present. Here and now is often love robbed of its power because we are either living in the past or we're too concentrated in the future. And it's like what one Catholic monk once said. He said, each new day is a gift from God to us. And the only appropriate response for this gift is contentment and gratefulness. So love in the present. What does it mean to love in the present, it means to appreciate each day as a gift from God. It means that when, when people speak to you, as difficult as it is, listen, be there, pay attention to the details. What does it mean to live in the present? It means to focus 
on what's really important here now. It means to also relish today and make right with the people in your world. And it means most importantly to make right with God. We give so much concern and worry to the future that we become absent in the here and now. So let us each examine our thoughts as Blaise uh, Pascal once said. He said, let each of us examine his thoughts. He will find them wholly concerned with the past or the future. We all almost never think of the present. And if we do think of it, it is, the only, it is only to see what light it throws on our future plans. The present is never our end. The past and the present are our means. The future alone our end. Thus, we never actually live, but hope to live. And since we are always planning how to be happy, it is inevitable that we should never be so, because we're never living in the now. And this is the march of time and the cycle of life. We are trapped in this construct of time, and it is marching us on to our final moment. The moment when we must walk through death's door. Death is inescapable. Verse 2, Solomon told us there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. In verses 19 to 21 of chapter 3, he says, I said in my heart concerning the conditions of the son of men that God tests them that they should see that we are, we are all like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to the animals. One thing befalls them, uh, as one dies, so the other dies. Surely they all have one breath. No man has ad ad for any advantage over animals, for all is vanity. They all go to the same place. They all go back to the dust, return back to the dust of the earth. Who knows uh, the spirit of the sons of men, if it goes upwards, or the spirit of animals which goes downwards. He's saying that we're all going to meet the same fate, even animals. Death is the fate that must meet us all. Death is the ultimate statistic. One out of one dies. And death is the ultimate equalizer. Don't matter whether you're rich, influential, powerful. Doesn't matter who you know or who you think you are. The same fate that meets me is going to meet you, sir. Death. And so Solomon took a look at both animals and humans in a philosophical, pessimistic way. And he said, concerning death, and life under the sun, both animals and humans are going to meet the same fate. There is a, there's an argument that some people who look at this passage develop and theology or, or teaching that they develop out of this because they don't understand the literary approach that, that Solomon is using here. They develop the argument and doctrine of Annihilism. The idea that when you die, you die. And there's 
probably two or three world religions that believe in that. Okay, firstly, it's Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that when you die, you're dead. Finish and clap. Also, the Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventists believe that when you die, you enter into soul sleep, you're dead. Clah. And when it's time for judgment, God calls your spirit up to existence again. But this is not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so, there are many lessons we can learn about death from the Kohath and from the sage. But the main lesson we should take away is that life is short, fear and obey God. Today is a gift. Why is the Kohelet stressing this point? He's stressing this point because once you walk through death's door, you step into eternity. That's why he's ranting. That's why he is so emphatic. He is communicating to us that once you die, you step into eternity, and it's permanent. It's permanent. There's nothing you can go back and change. Nothing. And if you didn't serve God in time, your decision is permanent once you die. There's no debate hall in, in heaven or crossroads that these gangster rappers told us about when I get to the crossroads. <laughs> There's no debate. When you die and, and you die without Christ, you will spend eternity without Christ. Yeah. It's permanent. And so we're stressing this point because once time has, has worked full cycle for us, we're going to die and step out into eternity and there's no second chances in eternity. There's no repentance or forgiveness in eternity. That's why when the angels sinned, they sinned there was no redemption for them because eternity is permanent. And so the Kohelet is communicating to us that life is temporary and that death is inescapable and that if eternity is real and permanent. And so he tells us that the one who exists outside of the construct of time, he makes all things beautiful in its time. And he is the ultimate master of time. And he has set in our hearts eternity. He has set eternity in our hearts. In other words, he's placed inside of our hearts a longing, an innate sense of, of wanting to, to know what eternity is like. And in a desire to live forever. He's placed that desire in us. And we won't find complete fulfillment and joy in any pleasures of this life, in anything this life can offer, or in anything money can buy, until we have our hearts set on eternity. Yeah. C.S. Lewis said this, he says, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The Kohelet wants us to be aware of an eternal God and 
and a place of eternity that awaits for us and so he turns our attention to the eternal and he says eternity is real how do we know that eternity is real there are many ways to answer that question but I choose to answer it this way because I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ that when he died and was buried he rose again from the dead this is an historical truth this is where the, the whole of our existence hangs on the fact that he rose again and I believe every word he spoke and lastly the teacher is reminding us that life is temporary and we're trapped in this construct of time and there's this monotonous cycle of time we're going to be born and we're going to be and we're going, and we're going to die and and life is temporary and and it's working us to the place of death and when we die we are set into eternity and eternity is real and eternity is permanent but once we get into eternity there is the judgment and so you'll note and observe that in verses 16 to 20 the, the Kohala turns his gaze towards what the wicked are doing and where the wicked is stationed and he says I looked at the seats of righteousness and, and, and the places of authority and I saw the wicked there I saw, I saw criminals on our cabinet in government I saw criminals leading the nation in a place where righteous people should live and occupy and rule, we have wicked people affecting the lives of nations. It's what's playing out now in South Africa and many parts of the world. And it brings him to this place of grief and frustration and he's probably wondering, Lord, when are you going to fix this? When are you going to make the wrongs right? Why does a wicked government rule? Why are they still in power? How long must the people suffer from this abuse? When will things change? And in verse 16 to 17 it reads, Moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of righteousness, uh, iniquity was there. And I said in my heart, God shall judge. God shall judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time coming for every purpose and every work and everything that is hidden will be revealed and so in essence what he's saying is will not the judge of all the earth do right yes the wicked rule yes the wicked are in power but one day every single one of us whether righteous or wicked we must all stand before God and sing solo and there's no one that can best represent you there's no one that can overturn any decision that the judge makes because his judgment is true and final and while we like to quote the scripture, if God be for us, who can be against us? What if God is against you on the day of judgment? Who can stand with you? No one will stand with you. 
on that day of judgment and let me tell you something about the judgment seat of Christ the judgment of God the scriptures say it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a loving God it's an awry, awesome fearful thing to stand before someone who is otherworldly who exists beyond your, your mental capacity someone beyond your imagination standing before you and seeing right through every excuse every lie every white lie and giving you an honest accurate assessment of who you are who knows you better than you know yourself or better than your wife or husband knows you who knows you more than anyone else his judgment will be thorough he will leave no stone unturned and his judgment will be final and the koalat reminds us that life is temporary that death is imminent inescapable and that eternity is real and permanent and lastly reminds us is that judgment is looming judgment looming so if you've mistreated your spouse you abuse your spouse if you are cheating on your spouse if you if you if you're cheating the books at work all you have is now to make right if you're, if you're living your life without Christ, all you have is now. You, you don't have a promise of tomorrow. Tomorrow is not guaranteed to you. If you're holding unforgiveness in your heart and bitterness, all you have is now. Because He will hold us accountable for unforgiveness. He will hold us accountable for anything that goes unrepentant. And the best person to represent you on the day of judgment is Jesus. He's our advocate. And if he's not standing with you, then he's standing against you. Because he said, he who is who, not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Can we stand this morning?